to overwhelm you with what the scriptures have to say about creation. To literally overwhelm you, to swamp you with scriptures. I have 12 points. You've never heard 12 points before. You're panicking already. What about those cupcakes that we're going to have afterwards? I'll get you to those cupcakes, don't worry. But what I'm telling you is we're going to go lightning speed. You may be frustrated with the fact that we're going to zip through uh, visuals and, and uh, graphics. And you may not have time to write down everything. These notes will be available to you online. They're available to you at the office. Uh, I, I love that you take notes and, and jot down things that you want to as you wish. But please don't type A personalities. Be upset with me when... Or the video person who's winging through things because that's the way we have to do it this morning. Um, I, I really do. I want to overwhelm you. I want you at the end of this to go, wow, um, really? And so, uh, having said that, let's pray because we've got to ask the Lord to help us do this. And uh, this is a critical, critical lesson. Oh, Father, we pray today that your word would um, enliven our hearts, oh God, um, that we might understand the stakes. What is... What is um, what is at stake in all of this? It's not just um, interesting intellectual information. It's uh, curious science. It's moral underpinnings. It's confidence in the Word of God. And it's an agenda that we face of the enemy. And so, I pray, O oh Father, that we might have our hearts open and our minds open to what you have to say to us from your word and that we might um, consider deeply these things and the value of knowing these things, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would direct me as you have already and that you would direct me in proclamation to remain true to your word and uh, free from personal speculation or bias, I pray. Because I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Let me just uh, point out to you that we're going to talk this morning about the truth of, about our origin and appeal to those tempted to serve two religions. Um, we are in, in, pure, in, in purely, purely the, um, um, the scientific versus religion sense. Uh, there are two religions. And um, evolution is one religion. Sci and and uh, evolution is one branch of a larger religion called science. And I want to show you uh, how that... Uh, how that description comes about, but suffice it to say that evolution is seriously flawed. It's a seriously flawed agenda. It's a worldview religion of the godless. And um, so we have uh, two, two um, belief systems in our world 
fundamentally in, in the areas of, of origin of life. We have those who believe in creation, and we have those who believe in evolution. Those two agendas are pitted against one another. But that's not really what I want to spend most of our time today talking about, because that's not really what I think is the great challenge to the church. What I want to talk and spend time with you this morning talking about is, is the troubling tendency and flood of Christians who are trying to marry creation and evolution. That's my greatest concern and the greatest challenge to the church is that reality. And um, as a Christian worldview that somehow um, science has the goods on the scriptures and we as God's people need to be in retreat. Now, in certain instances, it's just because some Christians are passive about scientific things and haven't spent much time thinking about it. In other cases, it's because of a general ignorance about what the teachings of evolution really are and therefore have embraced science ignorantly. And then there's a whole group of people who are academically ambitious and are running scared from the academy, the ac academia, with any, idea, with any sense of confidence in the creation model of the scriptures. And all of this would just be interesting facts that we would be sharing with one another if it weren't for this question that I want to propose as the central question of today. And that is this. Is there a moral, theological cost to being a creationist evolutionist, or as the term is more sanitized, called theistic evolution. Is there a moral theological, and I, I want to propose to you shortly that there's a huge theological cost, and as we see unfolding in our own country, a gigantic moral cost. So, I'm answering the question at the front end from my perspective, yes, but I hope to convince you from a biblical perspective. And I might add that this uh, embracing of theistic evolution, which is the marriage of creation and evolution, is gaining great foothold in church leaders, particularly under the age of 40. So when we look at the landscape of where the church is going, which is my great concern, younger leaders, younger Christian leaders, younger pastoral leaders, in great numbers, are embracing a marriage of creation and evolution. And I want to ask the question, is there a moral, theological cost to that? So, as I said, there are two religions uh, for those who are trying to marry science and scriptures. There's the religion of Christianity, which we call theism, but not really theism, whereby we declare as creationists, God created. At the very simple, simplistic, God created, therefore, faith in God. 
science, the other religion, science, which, which I'm prepared to call scientism. I've done a lot of reading, and I'm going to encourage you to do a lot more reading. In fact, I've been at this for 49 years. The study of this very thing, creation, evolution. I've been at this for 49 years. Uh, science is a hobby of mine. It's also an academic discipline of mine, but it's a hobby of mine. I continue to nurture that hobby. And I want to tell you that I didn't dig this sermon out of old notes that I had already done. Because I've taught on this so many times. But for my own sake and for my own discipline and for my own investigation, I chose to do fresh work all over again to convince myself before I come out and seek to proclaim anything to you. And I have, uh, in upgrading or updating some of my reading in the areas of science, um, are, are noting that Science has really moved into the realm of religion. That's why I'm calling it, and others are calling it, scientism. Scientism states this, there is only material. Now think about that as you think about the nature of what we believe. So I hardly have to go very much further in our discussion. The nature of what we believe is in God, who is not material, he is spirit. Science begins with a foundational principle that there is only material in the universe, which, by the way, goes against its own tenets, because science defined as this, the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation. In other words, science declares that by way of studying nature, it leaves open all possibilities through experimentation and observation. But science no longer leaves open all possibilities. It has declared itself material only and will not acknowledge any conclusions that are immaterial. It's not science. Once it puts that restriction, it's scientism. And we live in an era where the academy is filled with intimidated scientists who know that their professional careers are limited by whether or not they embrace the religion of science. So the academic power brokers of the scientific community disallow, disqualify any conclusions outside of material explanations. It's already a stacked deck when you walk into a science classroom in a university. And we've all heard of certain things. I'm going to throw a few terminology. Darwin's natural selection. The truth on Darwin. Darwin's natural selection is the primary 
um, the primary conclusion or the primary study, the primary experimentation that has launched the belief in evolution. And Darwin's natural selection can account only for minor adaptive survival of the species. In other words, micro-changes. But has no explanation for arrival of species. That's, there's books written on this. One classic book called Darwin's Black Box establishes the fact that Darwin's natural selection process, while we recognize, and he, Christians recognize as well, that there are, there are uh, parameters with which DNA has already been hardwired to adapt so that the species will not go extinct in environmental changes. We already recognize that God in His wisdom has, has pre-programmed and hardwired natural selection. But nat natural selection has gone way beyond what it was ever intended to be able to, to uh, observe to the extrapolation of the arrival of species. There's no proof. There's been no experimentation. There's been no observation that has ever demonstrated natural selection has been able to produce species. Not ever. And if it can't explain the arrival of life, then as one writer puts it, nothing evolves unless it already exists. In other words, if your model can't produce the arrival of life, it can't explain the evolution of that life. You understand what I'm saying? Humor me if you don't. Yes, we understand. Some of this stuff you have to go and read and think about. Uh, a tremendous book that was brought to my attention by uh, a, a member of our church here is entitled Undeniable by Douglas D. Axe, who is a, a PhD graduate of University of California, Berkeley, uh, has done work in University of Cambridge and has demonstrated in a very, I mean, you have to check your brain. You have to, this is not sort of light bedtime reading uh, while you're watching the Blue Jays play. This is something you have to spend time paying much attention to, but is a tremendously logically produced book, not from a perspective of Bible or Christianity, but from the perspective of an in extremely intelligent PhD who has proven by logic that evolution is utterly impossible. And uh, in the book, Many of the questions that we ask, or I've asked scientists over the years, is why, if evolution is true, why do we not see evolution still producing new species? Why don't we see macro change? Macro being big change. Why do we only see micro adaptation, micro selection? Why don't we see macro? And here's what the latest in science is saying. Natural selection is so effective... Creatures are so good at being who they are that they can no longer undergo evolutionary change. How's that? 
I would submit to you that that statement could have and should have been made in the Garden of Eden. Talk about punt. Testing Darwin's theory, but not on purpose, this doctor, Dr. Douglas Axe, and a team of, of microbiologists who work at the protein level were seeking to create enzyme changes in, in a very simple complex of proteins to try and cause, a, a, um, uh, to cause bacteria to evolve so that it would be resistant to uh, antibiotics. In, a, in a, his life's work, <laughs> this guy's life's work at University of Cambridge, um, University of Cambridge uh, Medical Research Council Center. And he and his team demonstrated in the laboratory that they could not evolve a simple protein complex by simulating billions of years of time to make any evolutionary changes whatsoever. If a simple protein complex under rigorous experimentation simulating billions of years of change of time, could not manufacture change. How are we to believe that we arrived from an amoeba? How can we possibly? And by this particular experiment, which is, is written up, you can read it yourself, enzyme family, shared evolution history, or shared design, a study of the GABA amino transferase family, biocomplexity, Number 4, 2014, pages 1 through 16, Drs. M.A. Reeves, A.K. Ganger, and Dr. D.D. Axe. You can read it for yourself. This guy's life's work drove him to write this book that design is undeniable. Design is undeniable. So, in... Uh, by the author of Darwin's Black Box, Philip Johnson, who is a professor emeritus at University of California, Berkeley. He writes, scientifically, evolution is a fiercely guarded bust protected by a global scientific community that has pitted its total credibility against the reality of God. It cannot empirically, observationally, or experimentally account for the arrival of life. Darwinism will one day be relegated to intellectual history. I believe that 100%. Okay, so that's the introduction. <laughs> now I'm really going to speed it up. Creationist, you are one of three people here this morning. You're either a creationist, you believe that God purposely created the heavens and the earth and all living things in six literal 24-hour days, from life to life, or you're an evolutionist, you believe that the presence of life in the universe is the result of a chance series of random accidental events and that species through natural selection, survival of the fittest, came into existence over massive expanses of time. 
So through death, you believe life came. Or you're a theistic evolutionist or some form of hybrid between creationist and evolutionist, which solves Darwin's arrival of life problem by crediting God with the creation of life, but evolutionary natural selection processes for the advancement of the varieties of species. So you, if you are in that camp, you, are from, you believe that life came from life through death to life. And you must believe that the Bible account posits great epochs of time between creation descriptions. You must be one of those people who is somewhat geologically intimidated, believing that somehow the rocks are old, when in fact the earth doesn't look old as much as it looks flooded. And you must believe that scientific dating calibrations are legitimate, which they are not if there was a global flood. I don't have time to elaborate on all of that, but that sets the table for one of three people you are here this morning. Make no mistake about it, and evolution will, the discipline of evolution will vouch for this. The evolution side will state this. Physical stuff is all there is. Science is the only way to know truth about physical stuff. And science, therefore, is the only source of truth. That's the logical flow of the evolutionary mind. Physical stuff is all there is. Science is the only way to know truth about physical stuff. Science is the only source of truth. Note this, that the house of cards that science relies upon comes crashing down if there is a God. It does. We all have to face the fact that science, the discipline of science in our world today will come crashing down if there is a God. Reasons Christians should not be theistic evolutionists. Why, am a, why I am a convinced creationist. Twelve reasons. You ready? The first starts with Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I'm no fool. I don't know about any of you. So that's a short one for you. Science has determined to live and die on materialism only. They have determined to live and die on the fact that there is no God. That puts the discipline in the category of fool. Design is an unwelcome truth of the evolutionist. Design, because design requires a designer. And a designer has rightful claims over what it has designed. And cosmic accountability is unwelcome. Theistic evolutionists insert God, but require time and lots of it. Millions of years of suffering and ruthless death to produce life. That's what evolution pro promotes. Do you understand what evolution, maybe we just, it's just a term, it's a sanitized term. Maybe we don't understand, we talk about national selection and all of that kind of stuff. Do we understand what evolution really is? 
It is species upon species devouring the next species to gain its way up the chain and up the ladder of success in life by ruthless carnage and death for millions and millions of years. The idea of evolution is a gory, ruthless, killer, death-valued system to produce complex life. And if you're a theistic evolutionist, you concede to the idea that God has started life because you have to, evolution can't. And then you adopt some forms of evolution of carnage and death and ruthless killing for millions of years to produce life. Which takes natural selection beyond its abilities. By observation, scientific experimentation, species have adaptive variation, as I've already explained. They're already hardwired. It's already hardwired into their DNA to allow a species to thrive in different environments and prevent extinction. But only micro changes and no production of new species ever. Theistic evolution positions itself at odds with scriptures in the following key areas of its worldview. That's, for me, the big deal. What does God's word say? Because you have to make a choice today. You have to make a choice today on God's words or man's words. That's your choice. Let me start with this. Under, at odds with scriptures, the accounts in scripture of the origins of life are framed in days and not millions of years. Uh, you brought your Bibles, I presume, this morning, and you're probably wondering if we're ever going to use them. We're going to use them right now. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, it's easy to find Genesis at the front of your Bible. <laughs> In terms of a sword drill, this should be the easiest. Get past the index and get to the first page. Let there be light and there was light. God saw that light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now that formula is repeated over and over again. Let me just run down a couple of things for you. The word day, yom. It appears 2,225 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot of times. And when you were, in terms of hermeneutics or in terms of interpretation of the scriptures, understanding how to understand the scriptures, to come to unambiguous conclusions. You look at the normal use of a word in the majority of cases and choose to interpret that way unless the context forces you in another direction. That's how we interpret scripture. We interpret scripture by the normal usage of a word 
used repeated times in the scriptures unless the context gives us some reason to use another understanding of that word. So the word day can mean long span of time, but only if context drives you there, like the day of the Lord. But when you have 2,225 times that day is used, and the vast majority, and I mean humongous majority, is 24 hours, and there's no contextual reason in Genesis 1 to drive you to any other conclusion, yom means day, 24 hours. But that's not, I know that's not enough for you. It says also evening and morning, the first day. In Genesis 1.5, in Genesis 1.8, in Genesis 1.13, in Genesis 1.19, in Genesis 1.23, in Genesis 1.31, evening and morning is emphasized. What, have, have I not taught you that if something is said twice, it's very important? If someone has said three times, it's really driving home the case? What if something is said one, two, three, four, five, six times? How important and how, how much emphasis would that be? I want you to know, God wants us to know something. Evening and morning, day. Now, the rule of repetition for emphasis is certainly here. And the 37 times in the Old Testament that this is used elsewhere, guess what? It's always, always, always 24 hours, without exception. But that's not enough for you, is it? He says here, not only is it day, morning and evening, but he says the first day, or day first, day second, day third. We call these ordinals, first, second, third. Now, by the way, ordinals have occurred 100 times in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, and you guessed it, they always are describing a 24-hour day. The first day or the second day or the fourth day or on the 15th day or on the 14th day they had this ceremony. Always, always, always. 100 times, 24-hour day. But that's not enough for you, is it? The sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, Genesis 1, 16 to 18. Days 4 through 7 is the description. The sun will be ruling the day, the moon will be ruling the night. It should also apply to day 1, 2, and 3 by way of consistency. But that's not enough for you. What if we turn to Exodus 20? In the Ten Commandments. What if the, what if the Ten Commandments said something about this? Would that have any strength? The Ten Commandments, the same place where it says, you shall not kill. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, Moses, the same guy who wrote Genesis using the same words and 
being told the same thing by God, says this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh Sabbath day and made it holy. The commandment, of course, is to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember to have a day of Sabbath. To have a day set aside for the holy contemplation of God. And the command is embedded in the veracity and truth of the creation event. In other words, Moses is saying, here's how I'm strengthening this command. This is because this is how God created the world. This is because this is what God did. God rested on the seventh day, and he made it in a sequence and cycle of six days and a seventh day rest, and that's how he wants humans to function. If we take this as long epochs of time, millions of years of time, this commandment makes no sense whatsoever. But that's not enough for you, is it? In this particular Genesis account, it talks about days, yamim, and six days, yamim. It's used, yamim is used 608 times in the Old Testament, 608 times. And it always means 24 hours, always without exception. If Moses had have wanted to use the word epic for day, he had a word, olam. He could have used olam and olamim, but he did not. Now, I could drop the mic right now and just walk off the stage, but I won't because there's more and it's not enough for you yet. God called creation very good, didn't he? Isn't that what it says in your Bible? Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now let me ask you something. If creation, if the, the arrival of life was a mechanism whereby God allowed millions of years of death and disease and bloodshed to bring the present world into existence, God's very good description and mine are worlds apart. I would not look at that and say, ha-ha, that's very good. Would you? Would you look at a millions of years of carnage and bloodshed and disease and destruction and say, that's what I call very good. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think God cared about his creation at all. You know, that description sounds more to me like steal, kill, and destroy. And who does that describe? That's the value system the descriptor, the characteristic, the nature of Satan. So when you have a model that is predicated on kill, steal, and destroy, that model doesn't come from God. That model is a description of Satan, not God. 
Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. The foundation of God's throne is justice, according to the psalmist. Survival of the fittest isn't justice. In Jeremiah 33, 20, 25 to 26, God has stated a very remarkable thing through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 33, verse 20, this is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night no longer come at their appointed time, in other words, if I'm not dominant over the creation reality, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Do you realize what God has stated here? He has put the very veracity of his creation model on the line to state that if you can break that, if you can prove, if you can do damage to that, then you can disbelieve my promise of Messiah. Now we're talking. This is not just fuzzy science and interesting intellectual discussions. Now we're talking about Messiah and salvation and the purposes of God for the universe. If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, if I have not done this, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is startling. God has, has proclaimed to humanity, I am putting myself as creator on the line for Messiah. God calls his creation laws as a witness to his dominant ability to keep his promises that Messiah will come. What's at stake? Remember I said to you at the front end the, the question, what's at stake morally and theologically if we try to make a hybrid of creation and evolution? In Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin, not through natural selection. The model, you can't believe Romans 5.12 and the model of evolution. You cannot. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin. Death came through sin, not by permission of an abstentia God or through random competition for life. You can't have a model 
independently twisting on its own of death and have God's word state the reason death came and its origin in conflict and believe both of them. Otherwise, your mind is going to blow up. Or it should. Furthermore, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Genesis 1, 26, 27. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. Let me stop here and ask you a question. Why would the living God create people in his own image through death? Because that's what evolution poses. That's what theistic evolution posits. That somehow over years of struggle and death, mankind came to be. That's in conflict with what God says here. Why would a living God claim to have made a living creature in his own image through the mechanism of death? And why would God threaten judgment on Adam and Eve if they disobeyed him through death? Genesis 2, 17, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why would that bother Adam and Eve? They would say, hey, our ancestors have been dying for millions of years. You think that's a threat to us? What do we care? In fact, bring on death. It'll bring on a better species than us. How was the introduction of death to Adam and Eve any threat of judgment at all if death had been occupying the universe for millions of years? This was a new thing. For Adam and Eve, it was like, what? What's that? Death had never happened because it was through one man that sin entered the world and through sin, death. Why would God warn Adam and Eve that death awaited them upon disobedience if they came into being much, through much death and dying already? And by the way, Jesus didn't do us any favor by killing death. Because if death is the portal to the next better species... Jesus shouldn't have killed death. Where were you, Job, and Job 38, 4, 7, God speaks. Where were you when I laid earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Saying, well, what's so a deal about that text it says the angels were shouting for joy while God was laying earth's foundation yes well if creation was some sort of hybrid between some evolutionary model then we have to believe that the angels were singing for joy while death and carnage and competition and ruthlessness were taking place for millions of years I don't find that anything to sing about. And I can't imagine the angels would have either. So 
they're witnessing billions of years of struggle and violence and death and they're singing and shouting for joy? God, I guess you didn't get it right here. The, you don't know what you're talking about. God called creation very good and that's something to sing about. How about Revelation 4, 10 and 11? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And why is he worthy? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Do you realize our worship is based on creation? So how exactly does a theistic evolutionist say amen to this text? Jesus asks in Matthew 19, 4, 5, haven't you read? Jesus expects us to read what it says in the scriptures about creation. Haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus claimed Adam and Eve were made by God. Was he lying? Was Jesus uninformed? Oh, wait a second. Jesus actually made them. Because he is the creator. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is in fact, he in fact is the creator. John 1, 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Nothing came into the state of existence outside of Jesus. So here's the truth. Matter is not eternal, only God is. That flies in the face of science. Science is one foundation is that matter is eternal. It's not true. Matter is not eternal. It was made by Jesus. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Do we realize that our salvation model is the same pattern and program as creation? The new creation of our salvation is dependent on the sovereign creation model of God? If God didn't call light out of darkness, why should we believe that he can call light out of darkness in our hearts and save us? Do you realize what's at stake? This isn't just a, an interesting debate in a science classroom. This is our very destiny, our very salvation. All the beasts, I'm winding it up by the way. All the beasts, because it's still not enough for you, is it? Is it enough already? Yes, it is enough. But I'm giving you two more things. All the beasts and the birds were brought to him. Genesis 2, 19, 12. Brought to Adam. But for Adam, no suitable compliment was found. All the beasts and birds were brought to Adam. Now, if they have been evolving over millions and billions of years, somebody's lying. Either all of them weren't brought to Adam, or they were. Now, what are you going to believe? And they were brought to Adam. Why? Because he had been given vice regency over all that God had made. And he was called to rule over them. And he noticed conspicuously that there was no compliment for him. He noticed conspicuously at this inception of creation that there was male and female animal, and he didn't have himself a female. That's what was happening here. 
Genesis 6, 19 to 20. The very same thing. The animals were brought to Adam. Now the animals are brought to Noah. Two of every kind, male and female. The procedure is repeated. It's a sensible, logical procedure. God made a male. God made a female. Males and females make little males and females. That's how it works. That's... We, we love that one. That's a big amen. And guess what Paul said on Mars Hill to the Greeks and all the sophisticates, all the intelligentsia of his day, all the smart people. In Acts 17, 26, from one man, he made every nation. Did Paul lie? Because if Paul lied, we're all going to hell. Because our New Testament theology, for the most part, is based on Pauline theology. If Paul's a liar, then eat your cupcake on the way out (laughs) and eat lots of cupcakes thereafter and don't come back to church ever again. I'm serious. I'm not coming back to church ever again. Either from one man he made every nation or he didn't. And we have already the text, sin entered the world from one man. If Paul's flawed, we're done. The simultaneous creation of a breeding pair in proximity of one another, preserved in the same fashion during the flood, is not only biblical, but logical to explain the present world. Not to mention the biblical stress on one man. What's at stake here? Binary is at stake. And why is binary under attack? Because people don't want to anymore embrace their gender. They don't anymore want to have intimate relationships with a different gender. What is going on? Not surprising that a binary biblical worldview is rejected by a binary, hostile, grave new world. If we can prove evolution, if we can get rid of creation, we can say we're any gender we want to say. We can have sex with anything and anyone we want to have sex with. And that's the bent of a satanic world. It's not science. It's religion. And it's the proof It's their proof text to say they can do anything they want. They don't want cosmic authority. They don't want designer because you have to serve the designer. Finally, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is a sense of God in everyone. But those who reject him cannot understand him and try to find other models that are ludicrous. Plutarch a Greek philosopher in the first century, wrote an essay entitled Fortune. And in it, his his, uh, conclusion is this, that there is a universal design intuition hardwired into all of humanity. We all think there's something bigger than us. 
and nothing impressive ever does happen by accident. It is common logical sense of a creature made in the image of God to look at everything impressive, including people, and say nothing like this happened by accident. That is hardwired into all of humanity. And only Satan would so blind the eyes of minds that they would fight against a design intuition. And I beg you, I'm serious. There aren't many hills I'm going to die on, but I'm dying on the creation hill. Because the creation hill is the hill that kills everything else in theology. God created in six days everything there is. That's the truth. As C.S. Lewis put it, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Our Father, I pray this morning and thank you and lift up our praise to you as the creator of amazing world. And oh God, may we worship you with passion and commitment and recognize that there is a moral and theological cost to loosening our hold on the truth in moral ethics, in sexual ethics, political ethics, scientific ethics, in everything, oh God. So I pray today as we conclude this great celebration day of our great country, we first and foremost are celebrating a great country because we celebrate a great creator of that country and of the people who are in it and all the animals and all the trees and all the flowers and everything there is. You will have dominion from sea to sea, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, amen. Isn't it magnificent that we, like the angels, get to simply gaze at God's marvelous creation and praise Him for what He has done? So praise Him, everyone ye heavenly hosts and those below, for he is glorious and mighty and majestic. Our Father and our God, this morning, we thank you for your tour and orientation of your word. Thank you for reminding us again of the magnificence of our creator God, who has made all things, everything that is made, was made by him. Oh God, you are amazing, and we love you, and we thank you for Christ who died for us, that we might have salvation to spend all of eternity worshiping and praising and gazing on your amazing creation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And amen.